this new day. And we thank you for the ways that you save us and how you come into our lives and how you change our minds and how you mold us and shape us through your word. So, Lord, as we continue to work our way through the book of Romans, um, open the eyes of our heart and give us your peace. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. We'll pick up where we left off last week. Um, this is the book of Romans, and it's written to, well, who's it written to? Okay, it's written to the church in Rome. And what we know from the church in Rome is that the, the Jews were about 10% of the population of the Roman Empire. And um, the church at Rome, the Jews were expelled from Rome by Claudius. And this, this would be after, because Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila in, in Corinth. Good morning, Raj. It's, it's sitting pretty well right now, so we'll, we'll just leave it there for now. Um, and so the church is likely mostly made up of Gentile Christians. And as we looked at last week, we sort of quickly went through chapters one through three. Uh, chapters one, Paul looks at the pagan world often calls them the Greeks because the Greek culture, Hellenism, pervaded um, the Eastern Roman Empire. Chapter 2, he looks at the history of the Jews. And chapter 3, he comes up to a grand conclusion about both Greeks and Jews. And what is that conclusion that he comes to in chapter 3? No one is righteous. Um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay. Um, now, again, as I talked about last week, there's a, especially in the ancient world, there's a lot of assumptions about who you are from the people you came from. Talked about the fact that Every nation, every ethne, had their own set of gods. So you have the gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Romans, the gods of the Persians, and then the gods, obviously, of the Hebrews. And the Hebrews make a, a rather, and, and often these gods are imagined to be geographically, um, geographically determined. So, for example, when the the children of Israel leave Egypt and they get into Canaan. The Canaanites tell the Hebrews that Baal is the god of the region. And Baal quite literally means boss. Um, Baal is sort of the, the god of the region who's in char charge of the region. So if you want your crops to grow and your women to bear many children and your animals to uh, bear a lot of young for your flocks and your herds to grow. You have to worship the local God. And if you give offerings to the local God, then the local God will bless you and everything will go well with you. That's basically the shape of ancient paganism. And so all these different religions had different gods. 
And now this becomes an issue, of course, when the Hebrews go into exile. And you have the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is in a sort of a refugee camp outside of Babylon, and he has a vision. That's where you get the vision of the wheel within the wheel. And the, the realization for Ezekiel is that the God of Israel is here in Babylon. And that's an earth-shaking thought for their world because, well, the gods of, of Babylon were Marduk and um, Ishtar and, and all of these other gods, Abel. And that, so then the God of Israel is the God of the whole world. And the God of Israel sent Babylon down to judge his people, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Hebrews have this claim about God being God over the whole world. So the book opens with chapter one. Pagans, Greeks have fallen short of the glory of God. The Jews, although were given the covenant, did not fulfill the covenant. Three, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then chapter four, we have all of this talk about Abraham and faith. We spent quite a bit of time on that because the message that Paul gives when he looks at the chronology of the book of Genesis is that he notes that circumcision comes in chapter 17, but God in chapters, well, he calls him in chapter, you know, he calls him in chapter 11, and you really have the covenant given in chapter 12. And Abraham responds to God in faith. And Paul in chapter four, verse of chapter four of the book of Romans keeps saying, it's not by observances that we are justified before God. It's not by the things that we do that we are brought into right relationship with God, God moves first and calls us to come into relationship with him. And his argument about this, again, is Abraham enters into a relationship with God, and God accepts his offerings on the basis of faith, not on the basis of the quality of his obedience, or the quality of his religious observance. And so why does Paul make that argument that, that God receives the offerings given by Abraham by faith and not by observances or obedience or moral performance? Why does Paul make that argument in this book that's pointed to the Gentiles in the Roman church? Why is that argument important? Right. Because remember, in the ancient world, everything is about hereditary. We started out this course. Remember the first guys we talked about in this course? We're talking about Rome. Romulus and Remus. Romulus and Remus are the twin founders of Rome, born to a woman who was a virgin. She was raped by the god Mars of war. So that's the founding story of Rome. And so Romans 
trace their, um, their heredity back to Romulus and Remus, Mars, the Virgin, who is raped by the God. Now, when you hear that story, and you think about the story of Jesus, Jesus is born to a virgin, but what's the difference? He, she was not raped. The angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to be with child. And what does Mary say? May it be so. Mary enters into this. So you see very, very quickly how the stories are patterned here and that the God of Israel is very different from Mars, the God of war of the Romans. But now it would be very easy for a Roman to say, I can't have a relationship with the God of Israel because I am a son of the people of Rome, the people of Mars, of Romulus and Remus. And so that's why in chapter four, Paul begins chapters one through three, all have fallen short of the glory of God, Jews and Gentiles alike. Remember, there's sort of a universalizing theme in this book. Chapter four, how do we come into relationship with God. Now, the standard way in the ancient world would have, the standard answer would have been, I come into relationship with the God of my family. Well, he's the God of my family. See, we today don't think in those terms at all. We, you know, we've been deeply impacted by Christianity for the last 2,000 years. So this isn't new to us. But for the Romans, this is very strange. You come into relationship not with God, not through human bloodline, but, you know, as we say, through the blood of Christ. There's a different bloodline that you are grafted into, and that's where Paul is going to go with this book. So, so in chapter four, he has to make the argument we are, we are bonded to Christ. We are united with Christ, not because, and again, if you look in the Old Testament, you look at the book of Genesis, there's genealogy after genealogy after genealogy. And I talked last week about all of these mythological histories throughout Europe where they're very interested in these genealogies and they're always looking for a common ancestor whereby they can sort of hook into the genealogies of the Bible. We talked about the Anglo-Saxons, where the Saxons said, well, we're descendants from the fourth son of Noah. And a lot of people who know their Bible would say, wait a minute, Shem, Ham, and Japheth has three sons. And so the Anglo-Saxon says, no, afterwards, Noah had a fourth son. And that fourth son was, you know, and then often with these Northern European tribes, Odin and some of those gods sort of get grafted into the tree. And, and that's how in the medieval period, a lot of these people sort of found their way into the story of the Bible. Because after Christian conversion in Europe, they wanted to be part of the story of the Bible. But now Paul is doing something very different. Paul is basically saying, you're not grafted into the story of the Bible by virtue of who your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents were, you're united with Christ not by, well, I go to church every week. Well, good, you should. You're united with Christ not 
by, I do my devotions every day. Well, good, you should. But that's not how you're united with Christ. How are you united with Christ? What's the mechanism? Is it bloodline? Is it performance? What is it? It's faith. Faith is how we're united with Christ. And so that's why in chapter 4, Paul is very um, pointed on this, this issue of Abraham responded to God's calling in faith, and by faith, he was put on a path of righteousness. Okay. And last couple of weeks, we've been in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, what we see Paul doing again and again is talking about Adam. Now, why would he talk about Adam in this context, in an argument like he's making? Exactly. So again, in the ancient world and in the medieval world, People were always trying to find this common ancestor whereby we could be brought into the story of the Bible. And so Paul now is going to go all the way back to Adam. And we started reading in verse 12 last week, so I'll, I'll, I'll just summarize. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. All right? Now, as I said last week, most people have absolutely no idea how much theological ink has been spilled on these verses. Because here's a question. I, I talked about... Um, the question of let's let's use this fancy word atonement what does atonement mean a little trick that pastors often use with it at one meant atonement is so so sometimes i'll talk to people especially people online and they'll and they'll say things like first of all they're skeptical about the resurrection okay i don't i don't People, dead people stay dead. Doesn't everybody know that? Okay, so they're skeptical about the resurrection. And then, and then they'll make the argument, even if Jesus rose from the dead, what does that have to do with me? What you find in the Bible is this argument that somehow in the crucifixion, resurrection, and we can add, the incarnation, and the atonement. See, with these four symbols, you can kind of get the whole story of Jesus. Incarnation, born of the Virgin Mary. Obviously, his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. All right? There's the whole story of Jesus. Um, it, how would the Romans putting this man on a cross and then the disciples claiming that he rose again out of the tomb, what does that have to do with me? That's a question that theologians have wrestled with, because the Bible claims 
in this process, and we're going to really get into this in chapter six, in this process, we are united with Christ. And as I read at the end of the sermon last week, we are united with Christ in his death by baptism. And if we're united with Christ in his death, it's the crucifixion, we are united with Christ in his resurrection, that's the resurrection, and we're united with Christ in his ascension. Christ's ascension is basically an argument about reigning over the world. So we're united with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, and in his exaltation. And we are promised in the resurrection to be heirs of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, that, that sounds kind of exalted. It might make us feel a little uncomfortable. But notice how are, what is, what place are Adam and Eve in the garden given over the first creation? They're caretakers. But even more than that, the end of chapter one in, in the book of Genesis, and you shall have dominion. And you, you can see that the exaltation after the resurrection of those united with Christ is also one of dominion over the new heavens and the new earth. So you see the continuity with the first creation in the continuity of the second creation. All right? But the question is, how, what exactly is the mechanism by which this transformation takes place? And there are a whole bunch of theories that have developed in the history of theology as to how exactly does Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and his incarnation, how exactly does this change us? So um, there are big fights about this, even, even today. Um, I mentioned these last week. Jesus is a sacrifice. That, that model or image or picture is particularly visible in Reformed communities. What? What Bible verses or what Bible images could you give me that see Jesus as a sacrifice? It's the Lamb of God. So the beginning of the Gospel of John, you know, you have the prologue of the Gospel of John, and then John shows up. John the Baptist is, is baptizing in the Jordan, and Jesus shows up, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. There it is. Jesus as sacrifice. Jesus as Lamb. Another image is Jesus as warrior. Last week at the 11 o'clock service, we had a text very much where Jesus is a warrior. What, what text was that? I'm going to remember a whole week now. <laughs> Jesus goes out into the desert. Temptations with the devil. Jesus is in a sense, and you can see this, especially in the Gospel of Mark, 
there are a number of verses that are very clear. Jesus does battle with the devil. And in the temptations, there it is, very formalized. Jesus is tempted. Jesus does not succumb to the temptations. He tells the devil to get away. What other ways do we see Jesus doing battle with the devil in the Gospels? What is one of the things Jesus is most famous for? Working on the Sabbath, but that's not Jesus as warrior. Healing and exorcisms, casting out demons. When Jesus casts out demons, this is Jesus as warrior. Um, Jesus is stronger than Satan. And again, the Jesus' rivals say he only casts out demons by virtue of the power of the devil. And Jesus says, that's a stupid argument. Why would the devil cast out devils? That's like someone turning on their own troops. No, someone greater has come. So you have Jesus as warrior. And so, and you see this in the crucifixion. And you can find these images in the Bible as well. Sometimes John, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This connect, directs connectly to Old Testament sacrificial system. Okay? And then the second one is Jesus, Paul talks about Jesus taking the, um, the powers and principalities in triumphal procession. And you have all of these, um, so there's, so there's the very, there's sort of the biblical period where Jesus and the apostles, and right after that, they call it the patristic period of church fathers. And basically you had some of the first theologians and, and, um, and leaders in the church who are sort of developing theology. And that's where you get Christology and the Trinity and all of this theological development. And, and in that period, you have a lot of stories about um, Jesus. You hear this, I don't know if you remember, there was a song by a Christian singer named Carmen called The Champion. It was a very famous song about 20 years ago. It's basically Jesus as warrior because the devil decides he can get rid of Jesus by putting him on a cross, but then suddenly it's revealed that this was God's plan all along, and he can't hold the devil. C.S. Lewis brings this out in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you have the stone table, and Aslan offers to be the substitute for Edmund, who has now fallen captive to the realm of the white witch. And so Aslan says, I will stand in Edmund's stead. And he is sacrificed on the stone table. And of course, Lucy and um, comes and cries because she loves Aslan. But then what happens? The stone table breaks. There's a deeper magic. The white witch can't hold Aslan captive. This is Jesus as warrior. So this is another theme that begins as people are trying to think about how is it that the cross and resurrection free us from the power of sin and death? You were asking about the gospel. There's the gospel, right? The power of the resurrection frees us from the power of sin and death. But how exactly? And so we have these metaphors. So one of them is Jesus as sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus as warrior, he, he leads in triumphal procession the princes and pal pal the princes, um, principalities 
and powers of the world. And then another one is Jesus as model. And, you know, in my, in my strange new life on YouTube, um, one of the, you know, I, I do a lot of talking now with Orthodox Christians, big O Orthodox Christians from the Eastern churches. And for those churches, Jesus as model is a big theme. And there's sort of a, a newer liberal version of that where Jesus as example, example is a word that's quite a bit weaker than model. Um, because the Orthodox churches all saw the incarnation as Jesus becoming, because before the incarnation, Jesus is not man. He's God. With the incarnation, now we have Jesus as fully man and fully God. And so Jesus is our model. And so Jesus then shows us the path. Um, there's this song that was, again, popular. Um, he came from heaven to earth to show the way. That's Jesus as model. From the earth to the cross, our debt to pay. That's Jesus as sacrifice. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the skies, oh, I lift our name on high. That's Jesus as warrior. And so if, you're, if you pay attention to these songs and these images, you can hear, and you can find Bible texts for these things, you can hear this movement of this question of, well, how exactly is this bonded to us? Okay, now back to Adam. And here in chapter 5, Paul makes the point that Christ is the new Adam. Now with Adam, you have the question, well, how does sin permeate? Because all of these models or all of these images of atonement try to answer the question that is asked by the skeptics of me. Okay, so if Jesus, even if Jesus rose from the dead, even if he ascended to heaven, so what? How does that get to me? And those three answers, and there are more. Um, Jesus is the sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice given for you. Jesus is the warrior. He's your champion who goes out and fights for you. Jesus is the model. You are to become like Christ. You are become united in Christ. So all of those, all of those images are there. But in chapter 5, we have this question. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. And, and actually, there, there are a lot of difficult questions with this. And there's been a lot less theological work done, even though it continues on this question. And last week, we talked about nature. Now, commonly, we tend to divide human beings into nature and nurture. Okay, what's, what, 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 give me an example of nature versus nurture.
Good. Nature is something physical. Your genetic code, your inheritance. What would be an example of nurture? Something that can be taught. Okay. So let's say it's something mental. Something, let's say, behavioral. But now, when you get into that question of behavioral, suddenly you, you see that nature and nurture. There's a reason we sort of keep going round and round about this nature-nurture thing, because it's, it, you can't really easily draw a line. Because, well, because the behavioral, the mental, and the physical are actually deeply tied together. Can you give me an example of that? Okay, you have twins, and they can even be identical twins. They might have the same genetic code. And there's fascinating twin study that shows, wow, look at some of these commonalities. This, this nature stuff goes really deep. But then you begin to also notice the nurture stuff goes really deep. If you have, if you have one twin that decides to, let's say, take up music, and another that decides to take up science, over a certain amount of time, they'll really become different people. Their, their personalities will be different. And, and so, so with a lot of the questions about just as we inherit improvement, salvation, renovation, redemption through Christ, how do we inherit, how did we inherit sin from Adam. And there's a lot of theories about that are sort of nature. And there are a lot of theories that are sort of nurture. And there's a lot of battles fought over this. And, and let me tell you, these battles can get fierce. I think it's really helpful that verse 12 is actually very open. Sin and death, because Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sin. So you have the question, okay, do we die because we sin behaviorally? Or do we die because we inherited sin naturally from our parents? And we want to answer that question. But, but many reasons, it's, I would say it's sort of a false question. Because just like you really have a hard time answering the nature-nurture question, basically the verse says, all right, well, let's say, theoretically, if you never sinned, you wouldn't die. Uh, show me your example. You'd have to find somebody who had never sinned. Okay, well, what does that mean? And, and you get all the way back to, remember when we talked about in, in chapter one, we talked about law number one and law number two. And we talked about even though the world beyond the Hebrews never had the revelation of God in Sinai, they still broke the law. And we talked about 
the mediated law and the immediate law. We talked about the hot stove. The mother can say to the child, don't touch the stove because it's hot. It's mediated. The child can rebel against the mother's rule and, well, might get a slap on the hand. That's mediated. Now, the immediate law is, let's say, the child has a neg neglectful mother and says nothing to the child, and so the child puts his hand on the stove. What happens? It's burned. It's immediate. And Paul basically made the argument in, in chapter 1 that the Greeks had the immediate law. And you can learn from the immediate law. The immediate law is very effective. Touch a hot stove, your hand gets burned. Part of the problem is you have a scarred hand, potentially. The mediated law is better in that sense because it's better to have never touched the stove and learned than to have touched the stove and learned by damage. And this is kind of the argument that Paul makes in chapter one. All right. So now we have this question of sin. And Paul goes on here. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Every child. Every orphan child who touches a stove will get their hand burned. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Again, now remember, Adam, he's making the argument from Adam so that the Romans are included. Because the Romans could say, we're not sons of Moses. No, Israel is. We're sons of Adam. Okay, that's why he's making the argument. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam. Huh. Here's a question. Was Adam's rebellion mediated or immediate? Oh. Why? Right. And it's almost always both if it's mediated. If it's immediate, because what's missing is, well, wasn't Adam, what was Adam told? <laughs> you can eat from any tree in the garden, but this tree right here. So Adam had been given a law, a verbal law, just like a child, don't touch the stove. Now, what Paul is going to note is what Augustine noted quite a bit later, that there's a funny thing that happens in our minds. If I, if I had a little box next to me in the room, and every time someone came in and, oh, you guys are new. Well, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, we hope that you, know, you find the lesson profitable. We hope that everything goes well and people are friendly and you get a chance to know people. But whatever you do, don't open the box. What 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 would I mean, a brand new person coming into the class? Well, I went to that I went to that church and they had the Sunday school and they had a camera and a screen up and it's kind of strange. There's hardly anybody there. But the weirdest thing was the pastor had this box, and he welcomed us and everything was kind of normal. But then he said, "Whatever you do, don't open the box." And you know what? All I could think about during the lesson was that 
stupid box. I kept wondering, what, what's, what's so important with that box that I shouldn't open it? And I went home. I didn't open the box. Pastor said I shouldn't open the box, but, you know, went home and yeah, I went to this church and everything was fine. You know, they had a lesson and blah, 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 blah. It was church. Yeah, the pastor had this box. And I mean, the one thing you'll remember about this church is the stupid box. We're like that. So then at some point, you know, if I'd say, you know, don't open the box and a bunch of people in church would be like, yeah, don't open the box. Don't open the box. We all know the thing about the box. What's in the box? I don't know, but don't open it. What's that? Somebody in the church is going to one day sneak into this room and say, I got to know what's in the box. <laughs> I just got to know. <laughs> and they're going to open the box. And I'll probably, if I were to play a trick on the church, I'd probably just put a note in the bottom of the box. Didn't I tell you not to open the box? <laughs> it doesn't matter what's in the box. You can put another box in the box. That's right. But, but the point is, and, and so don't touch the tree. So the serpent comes to the woman and says, hey, it's really going to be like, there's really good stuff in that box. Pastor doesn't want you to look in the box because that's where the pastor keeps the best stuff. Ooh, oh, I'm going to go in the box. There we are. So there's something in us that wants this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So Adam's trespass, he violated the law. It was mediated law. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift in grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. We talked about this last week. Paul is saying that the, the gift is greater than the penalty. And the free gift is not like the effect of that one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Okay, that word justification, we, we noticed um, this Greek word, dik, which basically means justice. Um, dikaiosune, we've talked about a lot, which is righteousness. Um, that gets a lot of attention in the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be in for the next couple of weeks at the 11 o'clock service. Um, justification is a standing before God. And, and again, back when we talked about Abraham, Abraham was justified by faith, not by his moral performance. And so what, what Paul is saying here is that through Christ, there is a new status we have from God. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Okay, now we have to, that word righteousness again. Anybody remember what righteousness means? Because it's a word we get list to we get used to hearing a lot in church, and we hear righteousness. Oh yeah, righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. Then I ask somebody, 
Define righteousness for me. Give me a little story that gives an example of it. Remember, I always talk about the two cops. You have the corrupt cop and the good cop. They both drive a police car. They both wear a uniform. But there's something in the good cop that he resists bribes. He looks out for the weak. He, he, he understands how to apply justice with wisdom. When to stop someone and give them a warning and when to give them a ticket. That's what the good cop does. What does the corrupt cop do? Corrupt cop is in some ways even e easier to understand. Why? Stop someone by the side of the road and, oh, the cop says, well, you know, I could write the ticket, but, you know, if you do a little something for me, we can just make this go away. Oh, that's, well, you think right away that might be a good thing, but then you start thinking it through. Okay, so what if, what if the cop is corrupt? That means that any poor person that gets stopped gets the book thrown at them, and any wealthy person that gets stopped gets off scot-free when I lived in the Dominican Republic. You, you just, you cops and soldiers would stop you out the side of the road and ask for bribes. And that's basically what happened. And you had no justice. But there's something in the good cop that keeps them from behaving that way. That's righteousness. And the question then is, how does this righteousness get into us? And what is that righteousness? And what Paul is saying is that sin and death came to us through Adam. How? We're not quite sure. Righteousness comes into us through Christ, and the gift of that is greater. Consequently, therefore, as through one trespass came condemnation to all people, so also through one righteousness, righteous deed, came justification of life for all people. Now here's a verse that has caused a lot of fighting over the centuries. Because if you listen to this, you say, Adam, sin, death. How many people die? Everyone. None of us gets out of this world alive. How many people receive Christ's gift? Ah, see, now we've got a question of, and again, big theological fights over this. Elect, chosen, anyone. sort of puts it on our will, those who are smart enough to choose. Well, haven't you now set up a meritocracy of the smart? Isn't that sort of like saying wealthy people don't have to get speeding tickets? Only now it's smart people that pick Christ and the dumb ones go to hell. That doesn't sound just, does it? Or 
you've got another problem with anyone. How about birth? Those who were born into places of the world where the gospel has been. Those people get saved. And if you're born in a place where there isn't the gospel, sorry, never had a chance to hear it, you go to hell. You've heard this argument raised quite a bit. And then the third one, all. Hmm. Consequently, therefore, as through one trespass came condemnation to all people, everyone dies, everyone sins. So through one righteous deed came justification of the life to all people. Uh-oh. Well, well, what are the issues with all? Because if you look at elect, people say that makes God arbitrary. If you look at all, that makes God irresponsible. Because suddenly, what we do on planet Earth doesn't matter. I can be Adolf Hitler, Joseph, Stab, Joseph Stalin, Chairman Mao. I can Paul Pot, Idi Amin. I can, I can brutalize the planet and at the end of my life stand before God and say, all means all. That sort of defeats the moral economy of planet Earth. So, so what you see is that, and, and there have been massive theological fights over these three positions throughout the history of the church. And it's not an easy thing to resolve. Now, Reformed have generally gone with elect. Well, you, you sort of wrestle with arbitrary, but elect has a lot going for it that people don't like to recognize. Americans tend to go with anyone because we like meritocracy. But that has problems of its own, like I just laid out. Lately, all has been coming into greater fashion, but as I just laid out, that has issues too. And so, in some ways, one of the things to say about this is this is something we struggle with. But God will do the right thing. In other words, whichever of these I pick, um, my choice among these three doesn't save me. What saves me? Christ, united in faith. So in other words, I can get this answer wrong, but that doesn't, that doesn't threaten my salvation because it's not the case that when I die, you get to heaven and stand before Christ, and Christ basically lays out the Sunday school class and says, all right, big quiz for you. Is it elect? Is it anybody? Or is it all? Whichever answer you give depends on where you go. None of us believe that's the way it's going to go. Just like it's not a Bible memorization quiz, and it's not a covenant theology quiz. We are saved by Christ. Now, someone might look at that and say, hey, wait a minute. You've sort of snuck elect in there in your little story. 
yeah, I probably kind of have because that's the one that I'm much more in. But I feel the power of the other two, too. I see the downsides and the questions, but I finally say, you know what? Salvation is of the Lord. <laughs> he is going to do it right. Do I know exactly how he's going to deal with all of these questions? No. Why can't I know? Because I'm just a short-lived little human being who's, you know, not smart enough to know everything. I don't have all the information. I haven't lived forever. There's questions too big for me. But what will I do? I will trust in Christ. That's what I will do. And if someone says, Paul, you got this wrong, which people on the internet now do very regularly. Paul, you got this wrong. All right, I got it wrong. You know what? I get lots of things wrong. I get things wrong all the time. But I'm not saved on the basis of getting everything right. I'm saved on the basis of Christ's sacrifice for me and his love towards me extended to me. So tell me I'm wrong. I'm totally okay. I won't take it personally because I already know this about myself. I get lots of things wrong. But, but yet the question remains. So I want to give you a little idea of some of you who have been around a while always see that I mentioned Tom Holland's book, Dominion. Shows up on the, the cover of it, shows up on almost every sermon. I, well, Paul, why do you love that book so much? And, you know, I, I embarrassed poor Tom Holland. Um, Tom Holland had sent me, you know, he says, you, you, you're talking, Brits, Brits are sort of this self effacing culture. So he sends me this note. He says, you know, you're, you're, you're saying too many nice things about me. I said, okay, Tom, I'll, I'll leave you alone a little bit more. But I really like your book. And the reason I really like your book is this. In some ways, what that book shows is that through the history of the world, Jesus has blessed the world regardless of whether people are against Christianity, um, agnostic towards it, or different, or in favor. So people in favor, they would probably be Christians. Uh, agnostics, they might be secular people. Uh, against, they might be Muslims or Jews or atheists or anybody who sort of, you know, says, oh, Christianity's bad. Because what Tom shows in this book is that in almost every case in the world today, the arguments against Christianity leveled by many atheists especially, they're arguing that Christianity doesn't keep to its own standard. Christians aren't loving enough. Christians aren't generous enough. Christians aren't sacrificial enough. And you know what I say to that? You're right. <laughs> and I, I don't even have to talk about other Christians who I might think aren't performing Christianly. I can point to myself. I can say, guess what? I'm not loving enough. I'm not generous enough. I'm not sacrificial enough. But then the atheist has to face an inconvenient truth. That atheist 
has already implicitly accepted and embraced the new morality of Christ that has been transmitted to us through culture through the centuries. In other words, and this is where Tom Holland came up with it because he he was challenged by a Muslim when he wrote this book about Islam, and a lot of Muslims didn't like it. He was challenged by a Muslim who said, hey, pick on your own religion. And he was an atheist. He said, well, I don't have a religion. But then he started to wonder because he he was a scholar of ancient Greeks and Romans. And, And he noted that, you know, to be, if I were an ancient Roman and I saw a weak person or a woman or a child and I wanted something from this weak person, I would take it because the strong take the weak. That's the order of the world. And, and sometimes we get into these fights about natural law. And part of the bone I have to pick with a bunch of the natural law people is that if you look at nature, the lion eats the lamb. That's nature, right? Red and tooth and claw. The strong take the weak. Nazism basically regurgitated this argument and said, it's our, it's our, you know, they, they looked at what happened with the Jews and with Christ and said, that's very non-natural. And so Tom Holland looks at the ancient Greeks and the Romans and said, wait a minute, we don't believe that is good. We don't believe that is right. Something happened to transform the world to undercut the argument that the strong have every right to manipulate, control, subjugate, oppress, and abuse the weak. Where did that idea come from? And he dug and he dug and he dug and he dug and it said it came from one man, Jesus Christ. And the most ardent atheist out there that argues there is no God on the internet will say Christians aren't loving enough. Christians aren't generous enough. Christians aren't sacrificial enough. Christians aren't Christian enough. You atheist are advocating for the point of view of Jesus Christ. You have been morally improved by the crucified Christ, and you don't even know it. You mock the cross, you deny the resurrection, you say that Christianity has made the world a mess, but you yourself perpetuate the Christian ethic, even against Christians. And so then when I read this verse, Therefore, just as through one trespass came condemnation to all people, so also through one righteous deed came justification of life. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. Jesus has made even his enemies more righteous than they would have been if Christ had never lived doing it the whole time, saying things against Jesus and his people. Jesus is that powerful, that subtle, that sneaky to have actually conquered his adversaries and they don't know they are conquered. 
Now, the law came in as a side issue in order that trespasses could increase. But where sin increased, grace was present in greater abundance. All right. The kid, mom says to the kid, don't touch the stove. Kid touches the stove, burns his hand. Now, the mother could say, yes, yeah, I told you not to touch the stove, and then beat the kid within an inch of his life for touching the stove. Would a good mother do that? What would a good mother do? I told you not to touch the stove. Now you know why I told you not to touch the stove. Let me, let's, let's see what we can do about your hand that hurts. Not only would the story of the box drive you all crazy about the box, but the whole narrative of the box actually opens up a mechanism by which the authority can show grace to the trespasser. Now, it's a dicey thing to play out because on one hand, that requires the mother to, on one hand, be a little bit of a tyrant. Don't touch the stove. But it also gives the mother a chance to also be a healing and gracious mother. I didn't want you to touch the stove. And now you know why I didn't want you to touch the stove. Now, I've got a whole bunch of other things to say you shouldn't, shouldn't do. Maybe now because you touched the stove, you'll have a little bit of confidence in me that these other things I'm telling you about, maybe you should be, I'm giving you these things out of love. Because often with the child dynamic, it's like, you're telling me no because you're wanting to take away my fun. And of course, as the kid gets older, it's not a lot of fun to get your hand burned. But there are far more subtle traps in life that are fun at the beginning and prison at the end. And so now suddenly the mother can say, I ask this of you for your benefit because I love you and I want good things for you. I hope you'll trust me because as far as things go, little kids, little problems. Owie on the hand, hopefully not too badly scarred, you know, maybe a little life lesson. The older we get, oh, it all gets way more complicated. And the bondages get way more serious than just a hurt hand. So just as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness, to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the goal. And, you know, I've, I've, I've earned, a, I've, I've learned and gained a lot from my conversations with atheists and, and Christians of, of other traditions, and it's been really wonderful. And, you know, I can see just as, just as I can see the, the nuances in this question of elect or anyone or all. I can see the nuances and the beauty in Jesus as sacrifice, Jesus as warrior, Jesus as model. 
And I can see that each of them, to the degree that they're biblical, reveals Christ. And I can see that each of them reveals aspects of the world and of life that, that, are, that are difficult to see. And I can see that, as is so often the case, reality itself is more complex than our little minds can wrap our heads around. And so different models are actually super helpful in seeing more of the world. But, but the goal of all of this, as Paul notes, is that grace would reign through righteousness. That's, that's the mother soothing the child with the burned hand. Grace is reigning through righteousness because, okay, how about the good mom and the bad mom? You say there's something in the good mom that the bad mom doesn't have. That's righteousness. And the bad mom might, to the kid crying with a hurt hand from touching the stove, beat the kid further. No. Grace reigns. Grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Now, what's interesting is that in the, in the synoptic gospels, you get kingdom of God or heaven, you get kingdom. Gospel of John, you get eternal life. Paul, you tend to, tend to get in Christ as sort of the shorthand to what our deliverance means. And it's interesting that Paul here uses the John version. Grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the goal. The goal is, well, what's the goal of the mother raising the child? What does the mother want from the child? Mother wants the child to be filled with the kind of righteousness that she has. So let's say the child grows up and the child has a child. And that, that now grown child says, don't touch the stove. Because you'll just don't touch the stove. You don't understand why, because you've never experienced this pain. And the child does. Now here's where it's inherited, right? You know, Edie can tell you about this. She works with this stuff all the time. Let's say the first draft of parenting you inherit from your parents. And so if the woman remembers, I was beat within an inch of my life because I touched the stove and burned my hand. When that child grows up to be a mother, she might repeat it. But grace reigning through righteousness to eternal life the child of the good mother tells the child, the grandchild, don't touch the stove. Child touches the stove, burns her hand. That grace passes on generation through generation. See, it's really tricky because it's not just nature and nurture. It's deep within us at many levels. We're out of time. Let's pray. Lord, you move through us. You move through time. We, we, we are small-minded creatures that can only see a little bit. But you transform us, even when we're not looking. Just like you, you speak through the atheist who chides us to be more like you, even though the atheist doesn't understand that in his mind, the ideal human being looks like Jesus. 
And so, Lord, your reign continues over this world. Sometimes we participated in, in it consciously, sometimes unconsciously. Sometimes we rebel consciously. Sometimes we rebel unconsciously. But your reign continues to grow. And so, Lord, we don't always know if it's elect or anyone or all. But, Lord, we know who to trust and we know who to believe in. And so we ask, Lord, that you would continue to remake us and save us not only from our conscious sins, but even the ones we're unconscious of. So hear our prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen.